This is Monday Morning QB, January 18th, 2021. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, preparing for the possibility of more right-wing violence. And would you believe left-wing protesters receive harsher treatment from police than conservatives? The Republican Party is divided about loyalty to Trumpism. We remember the radical vision of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a talk with one of Joe Biden's high-level appointments. All that and more, stay with us. Washington, D.C., as well as state capitals across the nation, will be doing their best this week to fortify themselves against violence leading up to and during Wednesday's inauguration. It's only been 12 days since the insurrectionist mob attacked the U.S. Capitol, and no one in government wants to be caught again with their guard down. But that will mean more than just bringing in the National Guard. Sue Goodwin has this report. Once we get on the other side of the Biden-Harris inauguration, the investigations will begin. How did the siege on January 6 happen? And what can prevent it from happening again? Just over the weekend, four House committees wrote a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray announcing their investigation into what warning signs may have been missed, whether there were systematic failures, and how best to address countering domestic violent extremism. To gain some insight ourselves, we turn to Brian Levin, a foremost expert on hate in America and director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. And we started by talking about what we can learn by looking at who was actually there and how important is it to focus on nationally organized white supremacist and anti-government movements versus more localized and individual grievances. As someone who studies hate groups, Brian Levin says those are questions that present their own unique challenge to answer. It's like analyzing vomit. And when people get into a frenzy, you're not always going to get people who are from like Nazi Central. You will get a lot of those, and we saw them. Lovely T-shirts, people, lovely. But what is so stark is like how angry people are. And when people are driven by grievance, and there's mob action, and a symbolic target, even if the grievances are tangentially related, that's what you get. But here's the thing. Let me make it simple for all listeners. It's a white supremacist, neo-fascist insurrection at the United States Capitol uh, with some special source of, like, uh, relieved off people. And those peeved-off people have a lot to complain about, making it difficult to put the insurrectionists under one simple label. I think what we're seeing now is an angry mix of people, and they dine from different buffets, just 300 cable channels. Uh, And some of them will, will have their own idiosyncratic mix, but we'll have a combination of people who are ideological, a lot on the hard right. We also have people who are psychologically unstable and people who are seeking personal benefit or revenge, including from humiliation and what they believe is an eroding status. But even across different agendas that attracted people to joining the insurrection, Brian Levin says we can find common themes. I think for a lot of people, this is personal. This is, I have a grievance and and I feel that I'm losing ground. That's why I think you're going to see interspersed, certainly with intentional terrorists, okay, you're also going to see some people who just want to thumb their nose at elites. It's an interesting mix. I've been going to crazy rallies for three decades. And more now than ever, you have a mix. But I think what animates them is, is an acceptance of conspiracy theories, an allegiance to the president, this, this ridiculous assertion, you know, would black people vote? It's not fraud. Another question investigators, no doubt, will be examining is to the extent to which this was a protest that went surprisingly out of control, as many Republicans and Trump himself want us to believe, or was the potential for violence something more planned out with plenty of warning signs that should have been heeded with caution all the way up to the White House? Brian Levin says it's a combination of both. It's totally both. If Donald Trump, right, if he's throwing matches into dry kindling with gasoline, 
happens, it really doesn't matter whether he was reckless or intentional. You know, we'll let other people debate it. But this has been a crescendo for some time. When we knew we had extremists talking about civil war storms, boogaloos, all that kind of stuff, and the militant language, show of weapons by Don Jr., and all this other language around Rudy and others, it leads to one jingoistic place. So, you know, we're going to, like, hyperanalyze what he said 17 minutes before. The bottom line is that dry kidling, that gasoline has already been set. As investigations into January 6th get underway, it's likely we will hear from some Republicans who will try to equate the violent insurrection with Black Lives Matter protests that took place over the summer. During last week's House debate on impeachment, several GOP Congress members accused Democrats of hypocrisy by condemning the rioters who support Trump while supporting Black Lives Matter protests. It's a comparison Brian Levin flat out rejects. Yeah, because facts matter too. 95% of the protests were not violent. Are there going to be people who take advantage of situations to do bad things? Yeah, and there were some. But we're not going to use them to indict a movement that is about quality and the rule of law. That's what it's about. That's what it's about and about nonviolence. Those are the black Christian roots of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's steeped in a certain type of community and peaceful divinity. At least in theory, investigations into the events of January 6th will be focused on how not to let it happen again. And many believe that taking Trump the president out of the equation will further that goal. But Brian Levins is not one of them. Once Donald Trump is out of office, the threat will not fade because it, it preceded him. It got supercharged from him. But if he's not going to be the torchbearer for aggression-related grievance, someone else will. There's a whole insurgency in a subculture. I, I don't know if it's going to grow more, but even when extremist movements don't grow, and even when they fragment, and even when their connections to the mainstream become attenuated, they still operate. They might operate less hierarchically, less organizationally. I think we're going to see a combination based on what kind of unifying catalysts or leaders are out there which can sustain a movement uh, to greater activity. That garden of toxins isn't going to maybe grow in the unfettered way it did when there was that total access to social media, but it's, it's not going to disappear. It may fragment and it may change organizationally and operationally, but it's not going to go anywhere because change is coming to the United States and there are people who feel fear and there are mechanisms for them to share these fears and operationalize them into violence. So where does Brian Levin advise us to begin in trying to understand what led to the violent takeover of the U.S. Capitol? We, we need to look at grievance. We need to look at how this grievance is then exploited by not only domestic ne'er-do-wells, but don't forget, there's a ton of foreign interference going on too. And don't kid yourself. Look at our final report from July 2019. It's on our website. The facts are there. There is distress. There is polarization. And when there is distrust in the institutions that hold us together, there are a variety of ne'er-do-wells and political opportunists who will take advantage of distrust and that's what we're fighting now, but it is not uh, disorganized. It's not fully coordinated, but it's not wholly disorganized either. Look at the roots. Go back to the Liberate movement. That was a template for Stop the Steal and how this, this distrust and grievance mutated into violent aggression and white supremacist neo-fascist terrorism that was ensconced in a stirred stew that included mainstream politics. Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, San Bernardino. To read their research referenced in this story and much more, visit their website at csusb.edu. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. The virtual kid gloves treatment of the right-wing insurrectionists who sacked the U.S. Capitol building January 6th, is the clearest example that police use force less often when protesters represent conservative causes. In fact, research by Dr. Rudabe Kishi 
with the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project reveals that police are three times more likely to use force against left-wing protesters. So we've been tracking um, well, political violence and demonstration patterns around the world. And um, you know, we expanded to the U.S. last year. And, you know, we've been tracking demonstration patterns um, and, you know, who's involved like, on the left. <clears throat> it can be um, Black Lives Matter protests or those associated with uh, support of the Democratic Party or anti-Trump or what have you um, versus on the right would be those involving far right, you know, militia groups, street movements, um, pro-Trump rallies, stop the steal, things like that. And what we found is that um, law enforcement tends to engage um, you know, showing up, arresting, um, or using, you know, force against uh, demonstrators on the left um, much more often uh, than, than those on the right. And when they do engage, they tend to uh, use, use force, whether it's pepper spray, tear gas, rubber bullets, things like that, much more often. And, you know, some of the counter arguments that we've heard have been, you know, this might be because the demonstrations on the left, like the BLM protests of the summer, were, were so much more violent and therefore it's warranted. But what we've found is that not only do we see that the Black Lives Matter movement has been overwhelmingly peaceful, um, you know, while the, the media has really focused on a very small fraction of demonstrations that may have been destructive or violent, um, the, the vast majority, you know, over 94% have been peaceful. Um, but even if we look solely at those peaceful protests, the ones in which there there wasn't any reports of violence or destruction, like vandalism, looting, things like that, um, we are we are still seeing this trend to hold. We are still seeing that law enforcement will engage more often with peaceful demonstrators on the left versus the right. They will use force more often against peaceful demonstrators on the left versus the right. So it's it's not a trend that's being driven by um, this this narrative that. Uh, the, the, the left movement has been so much more violent and destructive. It must be much worse for things that are just strictly identified as black. Um, I mean, anecdotally, I would think that to be true, but we, we don't track um, racial makeup of demonstrators at, you know, protest movements. That said, you know, we see those demonstrations uh, associated with the black population, like the Black Lives Matter movement, those against police brutality, those that might involve support for the NAACP, things like that. We do see those you know, on the left being uh, seeing more force relative to those on the right, but we don't have um, measures really of like uh, comparing, I don't know, white versus black left protests. And of course, you don't track the use of deadly force on black individuals, which it seems like is way off the chart. Yes, that's right. So at ACLED, we track political violence. Um, so much of what we see around that trend in the U.S. Um, falls more squarely under criminal violence. That doesn't mean it's warranted by any means. It just falls outside of our mandate. That said, we do track as political violence instances in which law enforcement has used deadly force that you know seems to be against an unarmed civilian, someone who's not threatening. Uh, examples would be, of course, Brandon Taylor, George, uh, George Floyd. Those examples we do code as violence against civilians by state forces um, against unarmed Americans. Is the cause of this the fact that people who are police have a anti-leftist mentality? Or is there a culture inside police departments which takes ordinary, normal people and makes them hate the left and use force more often against the leftists? Well, um, I mean, on your your first question, I mean, it's uh, it's difficult to, you know, paint um, so many people with a broad brush, of course. But we have found that a significant driver of far-right militia activity um, is friendliness, personal relationships, what have you, between these far-right militia groups or street movements um, and law enforcement. Whether it's um, friendliness, whether it's tacit tolerance, um, but, you know, we are we are seeing that. You know, I mean, we've seen examples 
throughout the summer, for example, with like the events of Kenosha, we've seen them in Virginia, we've seen militia members, you know, providing quote unquote security for sitting senators or representatives that are running like in Georgia. So I, you know, we, we definitely see that kind of relationship, at least with, you know, with some, uh, between some law enforcement and, and uh, the right. And in those cases, you know, we, we do see that, um, we see that relationship play out, and we see that that means increased militia activity. Anecdotally, some people would suggest that cops beat up leftists and black people just for sport. Well, I mean, I think we see we see a different response for sure to these demonstrations. We see, um, you know, even if we're looking at the subset of demonstrations that are you know, violent or destructive. And, and, you know, I'll say that, you know, when I, when I say that, that includes cases in which demonstrators may have quote unquote started it. Uh, and as well as, you know, when law enforcement may have started it. And we see in those cases that, you know, law enforcement still engages more often with those on the left. Once they do engage with such demonstrators, they do seem to use the same amount of force, regardless of who, who the, who the demonstrator is, whether it's left, whether it's right. But I think the, the crux of it is that they will engage much more often when it's those on the left. And it seems like they are much more at, at the ready and willing to engage. And I think you know, some of that was perhaps what we saw, you know, early on in the day last week um, on Wednesday. I think, uh, you know, this, this, this like lack of willingness to, or, or lack of like being ready for the for those types of demonstrators, even though we we all knew that uh, many of these um, right wing supporters were, were planning to indeed show up on the sixth, does this research of yours suggest or provide a basis for really calling for substantial uh, police reform, radical police reform? Um. I think that that's fair. I mean, I think that we are seeing that there is a tangible difference in how um, in how law enforcement responds. And so I think, you know, given that we're seeing the response being so distinct, even though demonstrator behavior is the same, so it's not a response to demonstrator behavior. It's a, de- it's a response to, you know, a, a, whether it's strategic, whether it's politically motivated, um, of, you know, who the demonstrators are. And so, um, of course, that is something that needs to be changed. Is there momentum in the public sphere in order to respond to this and say enough is enough and we must change this police culture? I mean, we've certainly been seeing, you know, quite a a swell over the summer with the, you know, the huge turnout, you know, following the, Floyd's killing, um, and, you know, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, despite being, um, despite facing, a, you know, a lot more engagement, intervention, forced by law enforcement, um, you know, there were many reports of um, very strict uh, arrests or prison sentences, things like that for demonstrators, which you know, are meant to kind of intimidate those groups. That said, you know, these supporters are, are still demonstrating now. We, we are continuing to see this movement. We've been seeing, you know, so much conversation after the events of last week and the kind of response or very muted response that we had originally seen from law enforcement in response to the right. So I, I definitely think this is really top of mind of the, the population now. And I mean, it's next to be seeing, you know, what might happen with the new administration. Dr. Ruta Bay Kishi is Director of Research and Innovation at the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Republican Party faces a stark choice that will define itself and the country over the coming decades. That choice, whether or not to double down on Trump's racism and bombast after the Capitol riot, is already playing out before our eyes. Republican lawmakers and voters alike are choosing sides, most sticking with the outgoing president in the hopes of holding on to his expanding conservative base 
including cultish QAnon theorists and white supremacists. What does this GOP recommitment to a white America mean for the party's electoral chances and for the political health of the country? Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has an answer. Distancing oneself from Trump was in vogue soon after the January 6th riot. Even South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's most steadfast supporters, spoke out against the effort to overturn Trump's November election loss. Uh, Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. But when the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled four to three that they didn't violate the, Supreme, uh, the Constitution of Wisconsin, I agree with the three, but I accept the four. If Al Gore can accept five, four, he's not president. I can accept Wisconsin four to three. But it was Graham who, just a week after the Capitol riot, traveled with his president to the Texas border to celebrate the partial completion of Trump's border wall. Graham's vacillation between condemnation of and support for Trump's policies and initiatives is telling. January 6th drove an even deeper wedge between Trump loyalists and GOP voters revolted by his behavior. And politicians like Graham will have an exceedingly difficult time holding that coalition together. Meanwhile, Democrats are preparing to govern with a popular vote mandate never enjoyed by Trump and his supporters, but with an eye to their own divisions. President-elect Joe Biden announced a COVID relief and economic stimulus plan on Friday, opening his remarks by condemning widening economic inequality in a tacit nod to the party's left flank. The relief plan is far from the austerity many moderate Democrats are accustomed to supporting. Tonight, I'll lay out my first step, the American Rescue Plan that will tackle the pandemic and get direct financial assistance and relief to Americans who need it the most. Next month, my first appearance before a joint session of Congress, I will lay out my Build Back Better Recovery Plan. It'll make historic investments in infrastructure, that Build Back Better Plan, infrastructure, manufacturing, innovation, research and development, and clean energy. Investments in a caregiving economy and skills and training needed by our workers to be able to compete and win in the global economy of the coming years. Between a splintering GOP and a renewed, albeit divided, Democratic Party, where is this country headed? Stanley Greenberg can shed some light. Greenberg is a polling advisor and author, most recently of RIP GOP, how the new America is dooming the Republicans. He says the GOP choice between embracing or rejecting Trump will define American politics for years. The fate of the Republican Party and the trajectory of the Republican Party will have such a huge impact on what direction this country takes. Trump took over a Tea Party dominated party with real evangelical support, um, and he has that support to this day. You know, and I, I would say I underestimated his ability to, you know, mobilize, you know, the white working class base uh, again, which he did in the 2020 election at really historic levels. But the trends were still against him. And so you can have only even more intense anti-elite, anti-establishment, racist, nationalist, populist campaigns, you know, to win. Um, and he does that by, you know, winning the and still has, you know, the great majority of the support within the Republican Party in this, you know, in the same segments that he had before. You know, you also have these cultish factions as well. You know, that will marginalize the Republican Party, brand the party, and make it harder for them to win in the suburbs, harder to win in the states in the south with the big metropolitan areas, you know, and the suburbs uh, and college-educated voters. But that will drive the, uh, the story of the Republican Party, and it will also be a big part of America's story going forward. 
It's clear after the riots in the Capitol that there is splintering among GOP leadership and even rank and file lawmakers. And I think there's some polling already that indicates the GOP base itself is splintering. Uh, Reuters Ipsos polling has GOP support for Trump at 70%, down from 88% in mid-August, which is a truly significant decline. So I wonder which portions exactly of the GOP base are breaking from Trump after the Capitol riots and, and which are sticking with him and why? Look, these drops are very, are very important because they are, they are big enough for, you know, opponents of Trumpism, opponents of this Republican Party, um, you know, can join the party, become engaged, and encourages candidates to, to run for office uh, in, uh, in future elections. But the problem is the 70, over 70 percent uh, who still approve of Trump after everything we've seen. The big battle is going to take place not you know, in 2024, it's going to take place two years from now uh, when you have got races for governor uh, in North Carolina and Georgia, uh, Texas. You know, this battle is going to just carry forward and the battle is going to take place in the primary. This is going to happen, you know, very soon. Um, and I believe the Trump factions uh, are going to win those. And so you'll have Trump-like candidates as you did uh, in the Georgia runoff. And the trends we're talking about will continue. And I think the Republicans will find themselves ever more marginalized and branded uh, by this extreme form of the Republican Party. So like you said, Trump is, is clearly going to be active in GOP primaries in two years. He's built up this you know, tens of millions of dollars strong war chest in preparation for that. Uh, can you describe what you expect him to use this war chest for and what other tools beyond that uh, leadership pack uh, that he has to use to control primaries? And secondarily, how much more divided will this make the GOP if Trump continues to be this kingmaker figure? So look, I think we're in a period, you know, we're both, we're both parties, you know, are, are divided. On the Republican side, you have the story of Trump with his very strong, you know, base, militant base uh, that brands the party. Um, but you also have him being marginalized and delegitimated by what's taking place with the impeachment, what's taking place with the trials that'll take place over the next six months. I mean, this is gonna look like the Yippies when we see these extreme elements, armed elements uh, at trials in Washington, but maybe even all across the country um, as these very extreme elements, well-financed with uh, organization is going to look very extreme, this rebellion uh, against the American government. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that Trump won't be weaker, you know, going forward uh, because of those things. He gives ammunition to his opponents. He'll still dominate the party, but it's also a party that's still, you know, fighting for a white America to save a white America against a multicultural America. Um, that battle, you know, took place in the runoffs in Georgia. That battle's just going to, you know, move into the ne next election, um, and uh, and he will be backing, you know, those candidates in the primaries. The battle's going to be in the primaries first. You know, he's going to back, you know, he's going to back the candidates that align with him, and they'll they'll likely win. And so you'll go into the midterms, you know, with the Republican Party trying to defend Trumpism on the defensive because of how extreme and how racist it is, you know, nationally, but also how misaligned it is uh, with the emerging new American majority that is coming to govern the South and nationally. I mean, look at I me, mean, look, think of Georgia. I mean, they, you know, they sent a, you know, Jewish millennial and, uh, and black minister to the U.S. Senate, um, just as, you know, this uh, president was trying to tear this country away from that kind of multicultural America. Uh, and that battle is going to carry on, you know, in each election going forward for some time. But also, don't forget the Democrats are fairly divided too. You know, the this is more extreme; they're more violent. Uh, you know, but we also have the question of whether Democrats will be united going into the midterm. On that note, I mean, do you expect progressives in the, in the Democratic Party, the sort of Bernie Sanders, maybe even the Warren progressives in the party, being more? emphatic or more militant in their support for progressive causes within the party now that the GOP is sort of seen as having taken a step backwards? Look, you have a situation where you have, you know, a one seat majority in the Senate and, you know, like 10 seat majority, maybe, uh, you know, in the, in the House. 
And so almost any faction, but that's left and right within the Democratic Party, you know, can try to, you know, to call the shots going forward and make demands, you know, but I, you know, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be so cynical uh, about the moment, you know, Joe Biden's going to come in uh, facing a huge health uh, and economic crisis. And I think he's going to get very broad support uh, for addressing that. You know, I think he's going to be very bold uh, in the policies he's going to pursue in trying to address uh, the pandemic um, and providing economic relief and long-term in, uh, investment. You know, I think there's a, a chance, you know, over the next couple of years that we'll, we will be quite united around that bold agenda. You know, I think our divisions will come out later, you know, as we deal with other issues. But the nature of the crisis and how incompetent the government has been right now, you know, I think mean Democrats, I think, will be quite united, you know, in the short term. Stanley Greenberg is a polling advisor and author, most recently of RIP GOP, How the New America is Dooming the Republicans. You can read his latest thinking on Trump's electoral race war at The American Prospect. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger Drowns. If you've noticed that there are fewer loud black militant voices in the public sphere today, you're not alone. Dr. Clarence Lussain, professor of political science at Howard University, where so many powerful leaders like Amiri Baraka and Kwame Touré emerged, says his students today are focused more on their careers than on activism. Uh, The Black Lives Matter in particular is very sort of consciously and deliberately uh, diffuse. And so it hasn't produced uh, people of sort of a national uh, impact. Uh, So there are definitely some, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, BLM uh, leaders, uh, uh, disproportionately women, uh, particularly women, feminist women and women uh, LTBQG focused. And so I think, you know, that tends to be, from my vantage point, what's sort of dominating uh, kind of street movement politics. And then uh, then the other categories, you've got uh, black elected officials, which tend to be way more moderated uh, in this generation than I think in earlier generations. Uh, and then you have the, you know, the voices of uh, black scholars and black academics, although a lot of them are not necessarily activists. Uh, they're writing a lot in, in, in that sort of thing, but they're not necessarily uh, involved in any specific movements or organizations. I have used the expression that black people growing up would rather be first-round draft pick or win American Idol than being a uh, conscious black militant? Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's kind of a mix. If I'm just using sort of my students' examples, so they are very professionally oriented uh, and career conscious, uh, way more than I, when I was growing up. I mean, you know, I was in college and I was, you know, had a, a major and all that, but, you know, I wasn't thinking a uh, long-term career, you know, and I've got students who are thinking about, you know, their retirement and, you know, how they're going to do savings and their 501c3 and, you know, and these are like, you know, 19-year-olds. So I think, you know, it's definitely a generation with, you know, very different uh, uh, focus. And even sort of the activists, you know, tend to also be kind of uh, bending in that direction. And when they think of leadership, they think of, you know, winning elected office and, you know, being, uh, you know, famous speakers or something. But, you know, they're not necessarily thinking of building organizations and, and institutions kind of along those lines. Is that necessarily a bad thing? 
So I don't think it's a bad thing. And, you know, there's a lot of people who end up in the movement who, you know, later in life, you know, uh, you know, kind of suffer uh, personally. Uh, so I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the idea of how do you uh, uh, build both sort of your own personal life, uh, but also kind of have a life of service and uh, commitment uh, that kind of goes beyond sort of donating things. And so I think, you know, a lot of them are sort of wrestling with that because uh, a lot of, you know, they're, they're all race conscious. Uh, that's, that's sort of for sure. Uh, but they kind of not, sh- they're not sure what to do with that. And so, uh, you know, they, they have the opportunity to go to university, so they take advantage of that. You know, that puts them along, you know, a career path. And so, you know, that sort of kind of pulls them. Uh, and then for like the Black Lives Matter, like a lot of them participated. They went out to demonstrations and marches, but they didn't join any organizations. They didn't, you know, uh, they didn't, you know, make any kind of long-term commitments to, you know, any particular group or organization. And, and then a lot of them see their activism online, of you know, sending out information and then, uh, you know, speaking out on websites and social media. And, you know, we obviously didn't have those kind of, uh, uh, options. Thank you. I mean, uh, I was chuckling because I was thinking about the whole attraction of real housewives and, uh, Cardi B's and, that they seem to have on people rather than, right. uh, you know, rather than, um, you know, the, the call to service. Um, right. Uh, thanks for the illumination. Yeah. I think, I think it's just not a lot of voices that they, they listen to or respect that aren't, you know, celebrities. So, you know, they're not really listening to, to Al Sharpton uh, or, you know, folks in the congressional black caucus or anything. So they're not necessarily dissing them or disrespect, but that's not, you know, they're not following them. And so, you know, Colin Kaepernick or LeBron James or, you know, Beyonce, you know, is going to have more influence on them right now. Jay-Z or somebody. Dr. Clarence Lusane is a professor of political science at Howard University. Today, we honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. As the country continues to come to terms with its history, many have reconsidered how we remember our national heroes, and Dr. King is no exception. Amara Evering reports on the underdocumented radical politics of Martin Luther King, Jr. Today, we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., whose legacy has become both myth and legend. Dr. King continues to show up in our nation's conversations about race, justice, and human rights. I spoke with theologian, musician, and prominent activist, Reverend Osagifo Ohuro Seku. Reverend Seku addressed the impact of Dr. King's larger-than-life legacy to theologians and activists alike. King represents a mythological model for us. You'll find pictures of him hanging in preachers' offices. He's often quoted. And King is often trotted out as the model of what a civil rights organizer should look like, what protesting should look like. You can't escape the gaze of King, the specter, or the appropriation of King. And many organizers like Reverend Sekou are unable to escape the specter of Dr. King, who was seen as the passive peacemaker, the martyr with the the turn-the-other-cheek attitude, right? Wasn't King beloved by everyone for his can't-we-all-get-along speeches? Well, no. Dr. King the Peacemaker was actually Dr. King the Agitator, and an unpopular agitator at that. 
there's a, a myth of popularity around him, right? The Gallup poll of 1966, favorability rating was like 12%. Black Life Matters actually polls higher than Dr. King. When King speaks out against the Vietnam War, every major newspaper trashes him. His own board censors him. So I think that there's a mythos around King, both on popularity and as well as what his politics are. Though by the 1990s, Dr. King was seen as one of the most admired figures of the 20th century, right next to Mother Teresa, it was only a few decades before when Dr. King called for the abolition of poverty and aligned himself with democratic socialism, much to the disapproval of the general public. His critique of capitalism could be found in everything from his documented speeches to his private love letters. There's a letter between him and Coretta Scott. He opens the letter saying, fortunately, my mood towards you has changed. So he opens the letter. I was like, Dr. King, you just don't, you just can't open the letter <laughs> like that. You, you know, you got to open the letter, baby. I'm sorry, please forgive me. But nevertheless, she sends him a socialist utopia novel called Looking Backward. And Coretta was the socialist first, right? In this letter to Coretta, King says he agreed mostly that capitalism had outused its usefulness. And then when he's a student, he says, my thinking is more socialist than capitalist because he remembered the bread lines as a child. And so it stirred up these resentments against capitalism in him. For Dr. King, phase one of the civil rights movement was integration, voting rights, sitting at lunch counters. But the next phase was economic equality, it was Dr. King who said, quote, what good is having the right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a burger? And it was his constant focus on the poor that made him so dangerous. King's radical politic combined with what makes King dangerous is the mobilization of masses of black working poor in the South. And so that black lump and proletariat in the South mobilized, shaking the foundations of white supremacist ideology makes him threatening. And the reason why they kill him is because he is the symbol and the inspiration for a mass of everyday black people. Like Dr. King, the Black Lives Matter movement has been misunderstood by many. Yet from everything from Facebook posts to academic articles, you've probably heard someone say something along the lines of, Quote, Dr. King would never support this or Dr. King would be ashamed of what they're doing today as a way of saying that Black Lives Matter has gone too far. They're too divisive. They're too radical. The truth is that many activists today are living out the true legacy of Dr. King when he called for disruptive mass civil disobedience. So King writes about it in his last book, which is published a few months after he's died, called Trumpet of Conscience. And Coretta writes that it is King's final testament on racism, poverty, and war. And in that, he talks about mass civil disobedience, which is shedding Washington, D.C. down until an economic bill of rights is passed. Dr. King didn't only call for a whole shutdown of D.C. in order for an economic bill of rights to be passed, but he also called for an end to imperialism and the military-industrial complex. So how did this seemingly radical civil rights leader become the beloved peacemaker our nation celebrates today? Well, Reverend Seku has his own analysis. This is not unique to King, right? We see this across the board. We saw it with Nelson Mandela, who engaged in armed struggle once he became the president of South Africa. They scrub him of all of his radicality. He becomes kind of a jovial father of the nation. We see this with Jesus, right? Meek, mild, all of these kind of mythos around Jesus. And so we've done that with Martin King. We've done that with Mandela. And I think it begins with Jesus. You know, my grandmama said, if they lie on Jesus, they'll lie on anybody, baby. As a Baptist minister, at the core of Dr. King's beliefs were Christian doctrines, and not the same Christian doctrines which people use to justify slavery and racial caste systems, but the Christian doctrine that could be used as a manual of resistance for the poor and disenfranchised. King comes out of a tradition of the social gospelers who view scripture as an ethical ground of being to care for and create alternative visions and worlds related to suffering. 
because he's radical, because he's disrupting theological spaces and mobilizing masses of Black people via the Black church. It makes him extremely dangerous and threatening. The punishment for Dr. King's radicalism was death. And after Dr. King was murdered, he was reborn decades later as a new man in our public conscious. No, we haven't abolished poverty, nor have we rid ourselves of imperialism or even given up war. And systematic racism is still well and alive today. It seems like the only thing that has radically changed since Dr. King's death is how we remember him. Reverend Seku says this is why we must do our homework. It is incumbent upon a younger generation of organizers to do their homework, not to accept a popular mythos about the civil rights movement, about the black church, and have some tenderness given the level of racial terror that our ancestors were under. We cannot imagine what black folks went through. We have to do our homework about what these battles were, how they've been fought. And then lastly, I would say to a younger generation of organizers, be kind to your elders. Reverend Seku, previous visiting scholar at Stanford University's Martin Luther King Education and Research Institute, as well as theologian, musician, and activist. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. Bury me in the struggle for freedom in the arms of someone who knows my name cover me with love as the struggle it goes on say my name till something beautiful is born
It was the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history, and Jamie Harrison nearly defeated South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham in the November election. But Harrison is not going away quietly. Last week, President-elect Joe Biden tapped him to chair the Democratic National Committee. During his Senate run, Harrison launched a campaign to give back to the South Carolina community. In an interview with Julian Malvo, heard on WPFW, Harrison explained why he wants that campaign to be a template for the Democratic Party going forward. You know, one of the things that we had on our campaign was a program that I hope, if I do become DNC chair, to, to replicate on a national level. I called it Harrison Helps. We would go into communities and roll up our sleeves, and they actually help people. Uh, we helped 10,000 people in South Carolina get uh, hygiene kits and food baskets mm. uh, when COVID hit. Uh, we, we gave out over 1,000 backpacks to kids whose parents were laid off because of COVID. Uh, we worked at battered women's shelters, Ronald McDonald House, Habitat for Humanity. I think it's important that we transform ourselves, not just being political uh, or having the Democratic Party be a political party, but we got to be a, a community-based organization, uh, helping people address the needs that they have right now. It's not just good enough to say, wait until I get elected to office. Uh, folks need help right now, so what are we doing in order to leverage the resources that we have to help them right now? And I think if, if Raphael and John can do that over the course of the next few weeks, particularly in this time when people so desperately need help as we go into the holidays, uh, I think that could really make the difference in terms of getting people to turn out. You know who you sound like? You sound like Latasha Brown. Oh, oh, she's doing such a masterful job. Such and a she masterful. always talks about meeting the people where they are. Yeah. And it's not just about the election. It's also about service. It's also about the alignment. So the election is the outcome. It's not the first step. It's the last yes. step. You know? Yes, that's exactly right. And it's all built on trust. People have to trust that you are, you have their best interest in mind. And the and when folks get jaded because they just feel like politicians are going to do what politicians do, right? They, therefore, there's no value for them to go out. You 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 and I both know that there was a time when if you lost your job or you, you got uh, evicted from your home or whatever, you could call your city councilman up or your 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 state center. You know, when my mom was 18 years old, my mom had me when she was 16. She, when she was 18, she wanted to move out of my grandparents' house because she needed a job and she wanted a, her place of her own. So she reached out to her centers. And at that time it was Fritz Hollins and Strom Thurmond. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, ironically, both of those senators responded back to her. And even more ironic, it was Strom Thurmond's office who helped my mom get a job. And I remember asking Strom my mom, Thurman. It's Strom Thurmond. I, I almost fell out of my You are messing with me. You are totally me messing with me. I am, I'm not messing with you. But I asked my mom, I said, Mama, are you sure that was Strom? <laughs> and she <laughs> laughed at me. And she said, you know what, Jamie? They never asked me what color I was or what, or what, uh, or what political party I belonged to. All they knew was I was a citizen of South Carolina and I needed help. And you know what? That's what we got to get back to. That in the end of the day, if you are an elected official, your job is to help the people who you represent. But these people are too busy trying to help themselves. I mean, uh, Loeffler and Purdue are too busy trying to trade their own stock so that they can, that they can uh, make more money instead of making sure that there's unemployment relief for the folks down there in Georgia, instead of making sure that folks, uh, these small businesses can stay open. And so in the end of the day, we got to get back to what public service is all about serving the public. And, and, and that means in whatever aspect that, that is. If you lose your house or you, you lose your job, then you should be able to go to your city councilman or your congressman or your senator and say, I need your help. And they should help you. That's, what I, that's how I want to move our Democratic Party politics to get back to those days where we actually help people. We just aren't asking and begging for votes a few weeks before the election. We're actually helping people mm -hmm. every day. That's what we need to do. So I'm going to take us off topic. We want to look forward, but I also want to look back a little bit uh, to look at uh, Lindsey Graham, because that man oh, has oh, just oh. been pernicious. I mean, he began in 2016 calling 
45. You know, I don't call his names. I don't curse on the air. Um, but he began by calling 45 everything but a yard dog. Uh-huh. And fast forward, now they play golf, they buzz. Um, he defends the man every chance he gets. What's wrong with that picture? Yeah. And what's well, wrong with thing. it for South Carolina? Well, I, I hope uh, Donald Trump, uh, I'm going to give the president some uh, some advice. Uh, you, you trust Lindsey Graham at your own peril. The, the only person that Lindsey Graham cares about is Lindsey Graham, and he's going to say and do whatever. Now, watch this. Watch this transformation. Joe Biden gets elected. I mean, uh, he, he gets sworn in. And the person who's going to be camped out at the White House is Lindsey Graham. <laughs> because it, it, this guy doesn't have a, a, any moral convictions or values. The only value that is in Lindsey Graham's head is how can I stay how can I touch the emperor's robe? How can I stay in power? How can I stay relevant? Uh, instead of saying, how can I help the people of the state that I'm supposedly representing? He doesn't care about that. Uh, and it's sad that the folks in South Carolina didn't see that. Uh, this is a guy who, who will just lie to the people. He lied to the people in South Carolina. He said that he would not take up a Supreme Court uh, nomination yes, in the did. midst of an election year. And he went on, and not only did he do that, he led the hearing to get it done. But, you know, if folks don't see uh, repercussions for for their bad acts, they're going to continue to think that they can do those things. I mean, this guy called the Secretary of State in Georgia in order to intimidate that Secretary of State, in order to change votes and, and to disenfranchise millions of people. I mean, Lindsey Graham is not, he's not the guy that many of us thought he was. Uh, he is only in this thing for himself. He's only in it for his own power and relevance. Uh, and everybody else be damned. But 50-some percent of the of North Carolinians voted for him. What are they missing that you and I get? Oh, I, or, you know, or does race have something to do with it? Well, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of everything. I think there was the Donald Trump uh, effect that Trump was able to bring some people out that we did not anticipate would come out, and I think you saw that across the country. Uh, he ended up, even though he lost, he ended up with some coattails, uh, particularly in some of more, our more uh, conservative communities. Uh, so Lindsey benefited because of that. Uh, but, you know, we got to get – people need to wake up from this thing. You know, just because you have a D behind your name or an R behind your name doesn't mean that that person has your best interest at heart. You've got to look at the individual and the person and what they are bringing to the table. If Lindsey Graham has demonstrated that he is, will lie to you one time, I can guarantee you he has lied to you a, a whole lot. Uh, you probably just haven't re recognized it and, and realized it. And so don't go and... and uh, it's sort of like my, my one-and-a-half-year-old. I'm not going to go and praise bad behavior because if you praise bad behavior and you <laughs> give it attention, he's just going to do it again. And that's what the people in South Carolina have done to Lindsey Graham. They have basically said, okay, you, you're fine. Uh, you go do it again. We had this one, one newspaper who endorsed Lindsey uh, over me, and I'm still scratching my head over it. And and then just about a week ago wrote, well, we're disappointed. Where is the Lindsey Graham that we thought that uh, was going to be a bipartisan check? I was like, if he showed you who he was, what in why in the world, what were you drinking to think that he was going to do something different? Jamie Harrison, the incoming chair of the Democratic National Committee, spoke with Julian Malvo. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.